please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 25 this morning. And while you're turning, just maybe something to let you know. Some of you, uh, when you leave on Sunday, you see, especially since the spring, a growing number of people hanging out on the lawn outside. Uh, There are no invitations to that. Uh, It's an open invitation. It's not something formal. It's just a wonderful thing that people want to still hang out together uh, after the hour and a half here we spend together. So just encourage you if you want to just spend a little bit more time with uh, God's family here at Canyon Prescott, uh, please, everyone's always invited to that. So love to see you there. Bring, bring food, bring a chair, bring yourself. That's what matters the most. Um, we'd love to see you there. Uh, we're in a series going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, from chapter 1, verse 10, through the end of chapter 4, there is instruction from Paul about the fact that these Christians are divided over leaders. They're divided over their favorite preachers. Uh, It's clear. We saw last week that people are choosing sides. Um, They're not identified first and foremost as members of God's church at Corinth. They're divided based on who their favorite preacher is. And so you can hear more about the explanation of that passage by going back to the website, looking, on, um, looking, looking there for uh, understanding. Uh, but then we progress here into something that Paul wants this people to understand. You see, the people at Corinth wanted, um, or they believed that, in a sense, the gospel needed some help. The gospel needs help, uh, and they, the gospel needs maybe an explanation from someone who's very eloquent or wise. And so Paul's writing these next passages to, to kind of uh, contradict that fact that the gospel needs any help at all. The gospel is the power, not the messenger. And so he's going to make that clear to the church here at Corinth. So they're divided <clears throat> over their leaders. We see that in this series. And then uh, our title for today's passage is Understand Where the Power Lies. And you see why he would go on to this subject, because they think that the power lies in many ways with who delivers the message But Paul's going to remind us that the power lies in the message itself. And actually, a lot of people don't think the message is powerful. They think it's foolish. But we'll explain why the power does, in fact, lie with the gospel message. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25, please follow along as I read. I'll start in verse 17, actually, to to kind of get the context. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Because the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
Again, understand where the power lies. Maybe you've been in a situation where you're on an airplane or at a restaurant or in a park or wherever it may be, and you meet someone and you get into a spiritual conversation. You think this is an opportunity to, to share the gospel with them, to teach them who Jesus is, what he came to do, because all people are born in sin. All people are in trouble with a holy God, but God in his mercy has sent his son to bring salvation if people would trust in what his son did on the cross, dying for their sins and giving them righteousness. If they would trust in him and the fact that he's alive, risen from the dead, they could be saved. And so you're, you're thinking about how to share the gospel and and maybe getting further into the conversation, and then you find out that this person is a professor. They're intelligent, or they've got a master's degree, or whatever it may be, <clears throat> or they've just got some education further advanced than you have, and you know they're going to start <clears throat> asking you questions, maybe contradicting you, maybe asking you for certain proofs, and you feel a certain intimidation, and you think of something like, oh, I wish my wife was here to explain this. Oh, I wish my pastor was here to explain this. I wish Billy Graham was here to explain this, whatever it may be. And right there, there's a temptation to think that the gospel's power comes from who speaks it. It doesn't. The power of God is in the message itself. There's no better person to explain the gospel than the one who has experienced the saving love of God in Christ in that gospel. We are the best ones to explain that. For those of you who are students, junior high, high school, growing up, maybe college students, uh, you're in an academic world. And while you might go to a Christian school or a home school, there's a time where you're going to come into contact with other people who don't believe who are maybe in the same stage of life as you are, and they could have all sorts of questions and problems with the Bible or whatever it may be. And you might think, I need some Christian science, not Christian science as a religion, Christian, period, adjective, science textbook. You might think you need some sort of other person to, to speak to them. You, if you are forgiven of your sins because of Jesus Christ, and you've, if you've played your, placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a great person to share the gospel with them. The power is not in the messenger, it's in the message. And that's what Paul's writing here to remind the Corinthians of. They were tempted to think that the power of the message was coming through the messenger and not the message. We saw this last week. Apollos would have been one that people, uh, that people compared Paul to. Apollos, as we saw from Acts 18, was eloquent, wise. Evidently, people liked his teaching, liked his gospel presentations. And Paul will say, as we see next week, Paul will say that he's not impressive. His words aren't impressive. But that the power isn't in who's delivering the message. It's in the gospel message itself. So, my, my prayer, I really have two main prayers for, for this passage. The two main prayers are for the believer that we'd be reminded that the power of the gospel, the power to change lives, is in that message, not in us. There's nothing wrong with thinking, oh my, who am I to articulate the gospel message? Well, you're just like me. We're nobodies, but we have a treasure. We have a treasure, as 2 Corinthians 4 would say, in jars of clay. 
So bring them the treasure and let God do His work. My other prayer is for those of you who might not be Christians, for you to see that the beautiful salvation that God offers is something that requires you to admit your need as a sinner, to get on your knees and to ask Him for forgiveness and to realize that salvation only comes from Him to you, not from you trying to earn your way or figure out how God works. Salvation comes from heaven to us as grace. And for you to see that and own that and trust in that would be wise for you today as the Bible teaches that exact thing. So let's look today at the cross of Jesus Christ from God's perspective. Let's see the cross from God's perspective. Now remember, if you wanted the cross from the Corinthians' perspective, it was the cross is great, so important, and we need Apollos to preach it. Well, God's going to correct their view. It's great if Apollos preaches it. It's also great if Paul preaches it. It's also great if you preach it. It's also great if I preach it. The gospel is great and powerful regardless of who preaches it. So here's the first thing to know. We got three points this morning. The first thing to know about the gospel from God's perspective, it, the gospel, it destroys the wisdom of this world. The gospel destroys the wisdom of this world. You see that in verses 18 to 20. I'll read those. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? This is showing that God destroys the wisdom of the world, meaning that it's not by the wisdom of the world that the world achieves salvation from God. He destroys that pursuit. Verse 18, for the word of the cross, that, that's, that's a shorthand expression of very deep and rich truth. The word of the cross means the message of Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life, who is the Son of God, the message of Jesus Christ who suffered and died in the place of sinners and rose again. The, cross, the word of the cross, the word of salvation includes the empty tomb. They, the, the Bible writers see that as one big event when you talk about the gospel. So the message of a crucified Savior is folly to those who are perishing. For those who are perishing, dying, who will receive eternal condemnation for their rebellion against God, for those who are perishing and on their way to that eternal torment, it's, fool, it's folly, it's foolishness. Many people today think the message of Jesus Christ is stupid. You're betting your whole eternity on a Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago. And to a Christian, we say, absolutely. And they think that's stupid. The word of the cross is folly, folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Right away in this section, in this verse, he gives two responses. Foolish to those perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And then he's going to focus on the person who rejects it. So he's giving two responses, just kind of as, as an umbrella, but he's going to focus on those who are trying to achieve salvation in their own way, thinking the cross is foolish. But before we get to them and those who are rejecting, notice it says, <clears throat> but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. This is one of the places we understand that our salvation has been won in the past, accomplished by Jesus on the cross and coming out of the grave. 
Our salvation is also in the process of happening. He's continuing to save us. He's preserving us. And one day will be that final realization of salvation when we're glorified. So to us who are being saved, to us today who are being preserved, held, sustained, this gospel still is what gives us the power, still gives us the strength. And then he cites Isaiah 29, which is very interesting. Very interesting that he would cite this passage. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Because it's written in Isaiah 29, 14, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. He's not going to let man, man and woman, with their ingenuity, attain knowledge, right knowledge of Him. He's not going to let us try to make our way to Him. Our minds are fallen. We're, we're depraved. He's not going to allow His salvation to come through us. He's the perfect one. He's going to offer right salvation. And in Isaiah 29, 14, you, you, you need to understand what's going on there. In Isaiah, the prophet is speaking to the people of, of Jerusalem primarily, and he's saying, you trust in your political alliances you trust in military power, you need to trust in the fact that you're my people and I'll preserve you. But you don't trust in me. You trust in Assyria, in Egypt. You trust in whatever it may be. You've looked everywhere for security, but you don't look at me. And so in Isaiah 29, it's recounting the fact that the politicians of Jerusalem see this huge worldwide power, Assyria, as a threat. They're going to come and invade our land. They're going to come and destroy us. And so what do the politicians of Jerusalem do? They get on their knees and they repent and they say, God, we've turned against you. We do trust in you. We place all our hope in you. We look at Assyria and their might and we look at you and we see you as mightier. No, they don't do that. They say, Egypt's got a good military. I wonder if we form an alliance with them if they'll help protect us. And so they do that. So in their minds, Egypt is going to help preserve us against Assyria. But you know what God determines to make happen? He determines that the Assyrians will look at this alliance between Jerusalem and Egypt, and that actually doesn't scare them away. That actually provokes them to go and invade Jerusalem. So when he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, He's talking first and foremost to those politicians in Jerusalem, the ones that should have been leading the people to trust in God. He takes their plan for security and destroys it. You don't find security with God through your own ingenuity, your own moral way. You find security with God by trusting Him, trusting His way of salvation. And that's what Paul is pointing the Corinthians to. And then he says this, Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? He takes three well-known and looked-up-to professions, the wise person, and you know in Corinth, in that society, that was something that was prized. Oh, man, that, that philosopher is wise. He's got all sorts of wisdom. We should be listening to him. And Paul says, where's he? As he stands and makes his argument before God or tells people how to get to God, he's not even there. God doesn't consider his argument. Where's the scribe? Where's the one that's an expert in the law, probably of a Jewish background? Where's the one who's the expert in the law that can tell people 
how to get to God apart from what God has revealed. He's not there. Where's the debater of this age? Debate was such a big deal in first century Corinth, such a big deal. I mean, if you, I told you last week, if you tripped up on a word or two, you were seen to not be as eloquent or as wise as the person who spoke clearly. Debate was such an important reality. And Paul says, where's the debater of this age? Pick the best debater that you have, and we should be listening to God and not that person. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? God has. You, you can, again, sit on an airplane, go to Sedona, go anywhere you want where you hear people talking about spiritual things, and you'll see the wisdom of the world. You'll see how the world thinks that they can get to God. And it's all folly. It's all folly. You turn on the TV for five minutes, whether you're watching the news, sports, reality TV, whatever it may be, you see the world trying to show how to get right with God, what's good and right and what brings people to heaven. We're all going there after all, right? You see the wisdom of the world. And the wisdom of the world is tied to arrogance, thinking that we can make our way to God. And the cross destroys the wisdom of the world because the cross says that you and I are so sinful that God Himself, Jesus Christ, God Himself would come, need to come down to earth to suffer and die for our sins. It's only God Himself that can be the adequate substitute for us. That's what the cross teaches. We are in desperate need of salvation. There's only one way that it can happen. It's if we get God's own righteousness from him, from his hand. So the wisdom of the world teaches that you can get to God in all sorts of different ways. And I don't know if anybody here has any of these opinions, but it's good just to see what the Bible says about maybe some popular opinions that are out there. Why is it that you will be right with God in heaven forever? Eternal bliss with your creator in a place of joy everlasting. Why is it that you'll be there? Here's what the world sometimes says because I've done more good things than bad things. And you can understand that. We are a people who loves to compare and loves to evaluate ourselves with maybe our, our bias that's for ourselves. I've done more good than bad. Listen to what the Bible says. James chapter 2 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point of it, just one point, so you've kept the whole law, but maybe just this one area is kind of a difficult one. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. Now, why is that? Why doesn't more good than bad matter? Because the requirement is perfection because you're dealing with a holy God. You're not dealing with your neighbor who's glad that you pull your weeds more often than you don't. Okay? You're dealing with a perfect standard. Some people think that they can get to heaven because God knows that my heart is good. After all, deep down inside, my heart is good. Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Ezekiel 36 says that people need a new heart. John 3 actually is Jesus teaching a moral person. And Jesus says, you need to start over again. You need to be born again. That old heart isn't right. Some think that they're right with God because they're not as bad as, I'm not as bad as grandpa was. I'm not as bad as my sister. 
I'm not as bad as Hitler. That, that, and that's a common, a, a common thought. I'm not, I'm not trying to mock that, forgive that, but, but just I want to tell you what the Bible says in response to that. The Bible says in Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All have sinned. So, again, the thought today is that somehow God draws a line between humanity and says all that are this bad are the ones that are going to end up in hell, and all that are maybe just this bad and maybe more good or whatever it may be will be the ones that end up in heaven. And that's not how God determines who's going to be with Him in heaven, because He says, take that whole group, draw a circle around it, all of them have fallen short of the glory of God. All of them have fallen short. In the words of Isaiah 53, each of us has gone his own way. That's not the standard, not some line somewhere down the middle of humanity. Some think, I grew up in a Christian family. My mom or dad was loved by God and loved God, and so therefore I will be in heaven. Look at who my grandpa was, look at who my grandma was, my uncle, aunt, sister, brother, mother, father. But John chapter 1 says that salvation does not come by human blood. Something that, well, just on judgment day, God will be lenient in the end. I mean, He's a loving God. At the end of the day, He has this standard, but then on judgment day, ah, okay, He'll be lenient in the end. Jude 15 says that Jesus will come to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. That sounds like a promise. Listen, God will not be lenient on Judgment Day. Jesus Christ will not be lenient on Judgment Day. The way people are saved is not by God being lenient and, and sort of kind of caving in or, or, or giving in and being less just. That's not what it is. God is merciful, but that's different than lenient. Lenient says, I see the standard. Ah, who cares? If your son or daughter is murdered, do you want a judge to be lenient with the murderer? I know the law says, but I mean, you don't look like that bad of a guy. You're free. No, no. If God is the God of justice, He's not going to be lenient when it comes to punishment. But here's what the Christian gospel says. God looked at His Son as if He committed your sin. And God does punish every single one of your sins. It's either going to be punished, they're either going to be punished on you or on His Son. So justice is not perverted on judgment day. Every sin is punished. It's either punished on the perpetrator or on Jesus Christ who pays the penalty as if He were the perpetrator. That's not lenience, that's mercy. In the cross, you see the justice of God. He punishes all sin of those who would believe in His Son, and you see the mercy of God for the fact that He doesn't punish you, but He punished His Son in your place. So it's not that God is lenient on judgment day. He's not. He's just on judgment day. 
but he's also seen to be merciful on Judgment Day. He upholds the standard, and he gives grace. So just want to be clear about ways the world thinks that they can arrive at peace with God and what the Bible says in response to some of those ways. So do you trust in what Jesus did on the cross for your sin? Do you trust that He is the one who brings you to heaven by forgiving you of your sin and giving you His righteousness? Do you trust in Him? That is the message that saves. All other messages on Judgment Day will be destroyed. Well, I thought that… No. That's a wrong thought. That's wrong wisdom. The wisdom is in the cross of Jesus Christ. They're really… Two eternal destinations, as C.S. Lewis says, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And the, the thing that puts you into one of those places is what do you do with Jesus Christ and His death on the cross? Do you trust it for the forgiveness of sins? Do you trust Him for the forgiveness of sins? Or you try to please God some other way? So, in God's eyes, the cross destroys the wisdom of the world. There's a second point as we look at the cross from God's perspective. It saves those who believe. So it destroys the wisdom of the world, but it saves those who believe. So God, listen, God determined to save a people. He determined to rescue sinners. And He determined the way in which that would happen. God didn't just say, I'm going to save people. Let's see how they get to me. I'm going to save people this way. And the way is by sending His Son, whom He loved. Read John chapter 17. Read the whole Gospel of John. See the love between the Father and the Son. God sent His Son, His only begotten Son, the Son whom He loved from all eternity past. He sent His Son to be the sacrifice for sinners. For a moment, for a moment, it looks like God loves me more than Jesus' Son. Staggering thought. He puts His Son to death, and His Son, by the way, goes willingly to the cross because Jesus, the Son, who is God, is also full of love for sinners. Jesus goes willingly to the cross. God exalts Him because of that sacrifice, exalts Him because of that death, and now is with Him forever in glory. He has raised His Son to rule over the whole world. So He loved His Son, gave His Son, exalted His Son. That's what the Father has done. He's determined to save through that message. So if you think that there's some other way to heaven, you are looking God's love in the eye, looking the Son's love in the eye and saying, no, there's a different way and I'll find it. To look for a different way of salvation is to sin against the love of the Father and the Son and the testimony of the Holy Spirit, because the Spirit is there to show that message. So God determines not just to save people, to save them through the message of the cross. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, the cross, to save those who believe. Salvation comes through the gospel message and the gospel message alone. Salvation comes when you see that God has given His own Son as a sacrifice, and it pleases God to save in that way, because it's in that way that you see His love, and you see His justice, and you see His mercy, you see His grace, you see His compassion, you see His forgiveness, you see His righteousness. It pleases God to save through that message. 
So the message of the cross saves those who believe is the word in verse 21. And it's not just an intellectual belief. It's the one who believes to the point of dependence upon, who relies upon that message. The message of the cross saves those who depend upon that message about that Savior and that cross and that empty tomb. So getting to God by your own wisdom is a way of rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ, and God has determined to save through His Son's work. He saves through His Son's work. Listen to John 5, 24. This verse right here that I'm going to read you. This verse was used, uh, I'm thinking of a pastor that we uh, listened to this summer being in England, and, and part of his testimony was that he went away to uh, a boarding school because he kind of got in trouble a lot as a kid, and uh, he went to his grandparents' house. His grandfather brought him out fishing for a couple days, and his grandfather really walked him through John chapter 5, and he got to verse 24, and he read him this, and he asked him to consider this and where he stood with God. And this is what the Holy Spirit used, this passage, to, to bring this man to salvation, to see the offer of Jesus Christ. John 5, 24, listen to these words. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus speaking, he who hears my word, my message, and believes in him who sent me, the Father, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of life into death. Jesus is saying, listen, this is true. This is true. If you believe in the fact that the Father sent me, you believe in that message, the message of the cross, you believe in Him, you believe in what the Father has done, Father has planned, you believe in what the Son has done, you will pass from death to life and not come into judgment. There's nothing more important than you will ever hear than what I just told you. And I'm not one who loves hyperbole. There's nothing more important than that. John 3.16, for God loved the world in this way. You want to know God's love? Think of this way. He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Believe trust, depend on the Son for eternal life. So by God sending Jesus to live a perfect life and die in our place, God demonstrates His love to us. He's the initiator of salvation. He offers salvation in a particular way. Salvation is from a loving Father, the loving Father, who sent the loving Son to a people who've rejected Him. And he calls on people to trust in this message of salvation, this person, Jesus Christ, for salvation. God saves those who believe through the message of the cross. I was listening to the song, It Is Well, this morning and thinking of these words and praying that everybody in this room would know the joy of these words. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Do you know that your sins are forgiven by your Creator because you've responded to what He offered His Son to do, achieve your salvation? There's a third point when considering the cross from God's perspective. It's found in verses 22 to 25. 
The cross, or it, must be preached to all. This is a glorious message. So it must be preached to all. God's plan is to have His people, saved by that message, continue preaching that message to everybody. People all over the world need salvation. They needed it 2,000 years ago in Corinth. They need it right now in Prescott. It won't come through miraculous signs or by human wisdom. It will come when they have the message of the cross preached to them. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Now, let's understand this. Jews are looking for signs, and we know why the Jewish people look for signs, and we know why they look for signs in Paul's day. Because God, has, God had shown them His salvation so much through signs and miracles, hadn't He? He showed them that He was powerful and a Savior by bringing their ancestors through the Red Sea. He split the waves and let His people go through. That was a miraculous sign showing that God is the powerful one. He showed them signs in the time of Moses. He showed them signs in the time of Elijah. He showed them signs when the temple was rebuilt by Solomon. He showed all these great miraculous signs. And so they have thought, we just need more signs, more signs, more signs. And then you ask the question, how many signs do you need? When, when is enough enough? When do you start taking Him at His word? And so when Jesus came, He would do signs authenticating His ministry and the fact that He was from the Father, but then He would preach these words and call people to depend not on the signs, He would call them to depend on His words. You see the signs, listen to my words, listen to what I'm saying. And so the Jews of the first century are still wanting just another sign, just another sign. In Matthew 12, Jesus says, an evil and adulterous people seek signs. The power that the signs were all pointing to, Jesus Christ, had been displayed. He's been healing people. He has power over physical death. He's been casting out demons. He has power over spiritual life. He forgives sins. He alone can forgive sins in Mark chapter 2. He, for, he has power to forgive sins. He's demonstrated all the signs that you need. And so, when he says, repent, the kingdom of God is here. Trust in me. The Father sent me. Trust in me for salvation. And they say, ah, show me something else. Now you know why he says an evil and adulterous people seek signs. And later on in Matthew, he says, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? He, he says, one more sign will come. It's a sign of Jonah. Well, what was Jonah known for? going down into the pit for three days and coming back out. He's pointing to his own death and resurrection. There's the sign. There's the final sign. Believe in Jesus Christ who died, was in the grave for three days, came out of it. That's the sign. Don't ask for any more signs. That's the sign. Believe upon him who died and rose again. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. It's got to be more impressive than a dead Jewish man on a cross 2,000 years ago. There needs to be something more to it. No. That's the message that gives life. Believe on Jesus Christ. Well, that's the message. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. Notice it doesn't say we preach Christ resurrected. He could have said that. And as you see Luke write the book of Acts 
to show that the power of God is moving. It's at work in the world. It's going all over the world. They often preach the resurrection, but they connect the resurrection to the crucifixion. So Paul right here is trying to show we are preaching Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews. We understand that. The the Jews of the first century and even today, look at Jesus the Messiah and look at him with scorn, shake their heads. Their Messiah, their champion, their son of man, Daniel chapter 7, is not one that loses to Rome and Jesus lost to Rome. Our conquering one is one who conquers and doesn't die. But you could go back to the Old Testament and show that the salvation of God came through death, came through a sacrificial death, Isaiah 53, came through a lamb, a lamb who was then exalted, Isaiah 53. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, stupid. The gospel is stupid to the world. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, so people from the Jewish, with Jewish ethnicity, with, with Greek, and here it's, it's not just, it's just anybody who's not Jew. So you could say to the Jews and everybody else not Jews, here, Greeks. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, so people are called from the Jewish race, from the rest of the world. People are called. Many of them don't believe. Many of those don't believe, Christ is a stumbling block. Many of the Greeks don't believe, that's stupid. But some in those communities do believe. It shows they've been called by God. This is called the effectual call. The gospel is proclaimed, and five Jewish people say, I need more signs. If Jesus is really Messiah, I need more signs. And one or two or three say, no, 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 I'm listening. And they open their Old Testament, and they hear the preacher preach the gospel, and they say, this matches up. I need a lamb. I need a lamb who died for me. I need a substitute. And then they open up their New Testaments, and they say, I see Jesus as the lamb. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and they believe the effectual call. They hear the gospel message and they believe. Those who are called, both Jews and Greeks. Remember, I showed you earlier in the book how we're kind of going through the background of the book where God told Paul, you go into the city because I have many people there. You go into the city, preach the gospel, and that's going to draw the people that I'm calling. This is that language. Those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now think about it. When most people see Christ, they don't think power. They think, he lost. He lost. You might have seen the video clip within the last few months of a congresswoman on the campaign trail saying if Jesus would have had more guns, he could have won and wouldn't have died. She doesn't get why Jesus came. He came to die, and in that death, he saved what a blasphemy. We preach Christ crucified. We point to the cross. We thank God for the cross. We love the cross. Those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. What a brilliant way to save the world by having His Son come and identify with lost sinners and to suffer for them. What an amazing way to show the character of God. 
the love and the justice of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. This is not saying God's foolish. God is all wise, all knowing, but there's a little part of him kind of foolish. It's not saying that. If there was any foolishness in God, it would be far wiser than the wisdom of men. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This message must be proclaimed because it's the one that saves. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. Friends, this is the same mission, same mission. The mission hasn't changed. It's not as if the mission in the first century was, let's preach the gospel to those all over the place and to see them saved by Jesus Christ. But now the mission is, oh, let's just try to fix society. No, no, no. The message is the same. Preach the gospel. It will be seen as the power of God and the wisdom of God. I love this. Turn to Mark 15 just to cement this home. The power of God is seen in the cross. The world sees that as Jesus losing, as a would-be Savior who, who finally was overcome by the power of the day. But some people see Jesus dying and they say, oh my goodness, I get it now. He died in my place and rose again. I know my future. And they see power when they think of a dead, crucified, bloody Savior. Listen to this account. Mark 15, verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, hold on. God the Father has forsaken Jesus. The world doesn't want to follow a loser. Evidently, Jesus isn't winning here, and it's not just the Romans who are putting him to death, but evidently God himself is forsaking his son. How despicable is that? Verse 35. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. So they're kind of, there are some people waiting to see if Elijah, the great prophet, would be sent by God from heaven to take Jesus down. Maybe he will be the victor after all, and he'll escape this cross. And they're waiting. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Elijah didn't come. Maybe he's not the powerful one. Maybe Jesus isn't the son of man. Maybe he's not the victor. He breathes his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God determines that this great curtain of the temple, which separated the holy of holies with the people, would be torn. Evidently, now there's access for some reason into the holy of holies. Jesus died, but something's happening. And when the centurion, Roman executioner, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, in this despicable way, 
He's been defeated. He's bloody. His team lost. When he saw that in this way he breathed his last, he concluded, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Listen, that doesn't make sense to the human mind. It takes a spiritual awakening from God to see Jesus hanging on a cross, dying this way and saying, oh my goodness, He's God. The dying one gave Himself for His people. And you see it as the power of God. Do you see that? Do you see Jesus offering himself as a sacrifice for you so that you would be free of all your sin? You don't have to pay for your sin if you trust in what he came to do for you. Do you see that as the power of God or something that you just don't need? It's one or the other. This is brilliant. Or I could take it or leave it. Those are the two options. For us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And so what do we do with the time that we have on earth? We want as many people as possible to know that message because it is what saves them. Listen to Romans 10, 11 to 15. This could be a good passage to write down, spend time on later, thinking through, praying through. The Scripture says everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. What great encouragement that is. Because there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. So I got good news. There's salvation for all people on the face of the planet. You don't have to be of a certain ethnicity. There's salvation for all people. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on him. Believe in that message. You will be saved. There's no auditioning for it. Just believe it. Believe him. Believe the Father. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they going to believe in Him if they've never heard? What if they've never heard the gospel message? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. That's still true today. You might think, well, everyone in America knows the gospel. People in America know distortions of the gospel. They know false presentations of the gospel. Take it upon yourself to, to maybe tell someone what the true message of salvation is. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So, Christian, when you preach the gospel, when you walk someone through the gospel at the park, on the airplane, in your neighborhood, wherever it may be, some people will want more signs. Well, okay, I'll believe it if God does this for me. He's already done all that's needed to be done in His Son. Some people will want a better sounding message. So I've got to believe in this guy who died and rose again, and that's the only way I can get to heaven? That doesn't sound very inclusive, to which you say, it's not amazing that there is only one way to heaven. It's amazing that there is a way to heaven. God is gracious. But friend, some people will hear the message of the cross and see it as the power of God to save them. 
some people will hear the message and be saved. That is how he brings people into his kingdom, and he says that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. People will believe when we preach the gospel. So preach the gospel. Don't get distracted. Don't get distracted. Preach the gospel. According to God, the cross is a message that must be preached to all. So God determined to save by the cross. God looks at the cross and sees it destroy the wisdom of the wise, save those who would believe, and he sees that it must be preached to all, commands, commissions us to preach it to all. I'll end with this. Uh, this summer, as many of you know, we were on a sabbatical. I was doing some studying uh, at Tyndale House, a Christian research center in Cambridge, and uh, every day I would Back on, my, on my way to the library, I would pass by the great St. Mary's Church in Cambridge. Some of you have been there. Um, St. Mary's Church has a great history in uh, the history of the church. In, in the 50s, uh, Billy Graham was invited to preach there. And the invitation was sent to him. And you know Billy Graham didn't have a seminary degree. And when you go to Cambridge you want your credentials kind of polished. You want to show that you, you've got some intellectual ability. Well, Kent Hughes wrote an account of that in a blog post a number of years back, and he, re, he recounts what happened. Billy Graham was invited to preach at the great St. Mary's Church in Cambridge and to lead one of his evangelical crusades um, and a church leader from Durham, further up north in England, a church leader from Durham wrote to the Times, the newspaper, deploring Billy Graham's recent invitation to preach at Cambridge University. Why did he criticize this invitation? Billy Graham's approach, he argued, would be unthinkable before a university audience. He would be laughed out of the court. So this man evidently thought that the gospel needed some help intellectual credentials. Graham struggled with this. Graham's biographer, <clears throat> William Martin, said this, Graham, ever insecure about his lack of advanced theological education, dreaded the meetings and feared that a poor showing might do serious harm to the ministry and affect which way the tide would turn in Britain. Had he been able to do so with a com without a complete loss of face, he would have canceled the meetings or persuaded some better qualified man to replace him. So Graham was dealing with his own weakness. Billy Graham wrote to a man that you've, many of you have heard of, John Stott. Graham wrote to John Stott before this crusade and said this, I've been deeply concerned and in much thought about our Cambridge mission this fall. I do not know that I ever felt more inadequate and totally unprepared for a mission. As I think over the possibility for messages, I realize how shallow and weak my presentations are. In fact, I was so overwhelmed with my unpreparedness that I almost decided to cancel my appearance. But because plans have gone so far for perhaps, have gone so far, perhaps it's best to go through with it. However, it's my prayer that I shall come in the demonstration and power of the Holy Spirit. So you see even Graham wrestling with his own credentials and how he was viewed. So they have this meeting at St. Mary's Church there in the heart of the city center. Graham preached for three nights, the biographer says, and the results were modest. 
His sermons were, by his own estimation, too academic. He was preaching to impress the audience and not preaching before the King of Kings. Wasn't preaching the simple gospel message. He was just trying to show his intellectual abilities. Too academic. He knew that he was not getting through the students' hearts. He felt he was preaching to please his audience rather than the Holy Spirit, so Billy Graham sought the Lord. Then came the breakthrough. Following his third sermon, the day after his 37th birthday, Billy Graham set aside his university-focused sermons and preached to ordinary human souls. Graham's weakness, plus the all-sufficient transforming power of the new covenant, put his dependence upon the Holy Spirit and wrought a mighty ministry in Cambridge. I love the words of Hughes at the end of this article. He says this, those whom God uses have always been aware of their insufficiency and weakness, be it Moses or Gideon or Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Paul or Peter or John. And it was their insufficiency that invited the sufficiency of God. Let me say it very clearly. We are nothing. The gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful, and we have it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder that your gospel needs no help. It doesn't need to be accompanied by entertainment at church. It doesn't need to be accompanied by seminary degrees that we hold. The gospel simply needs to lovingly be proclaimed. Thank you for the reminder. Thank you for the reminder of the amazing grace that you've shown to sinners. Thank you for the amazing grace that you've shown to sinners by giving them your Son. Jesus Christ, thank you for your work. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.